Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 164. It's January 11th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. The markets have been incredibly volatile as we go into the new year, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about in this episode. So today we'll be talking about specifics, but as always with the Wellsteading Podcast, we're also going to talk in enough generalities where you can come back and be listening to this podcast in five years and the material will still be relevant because we're not so much talking about just what's going on today, but we're talking about what's occurring when a market starts to top out and roll over and when it goes from a normal correction into a bear market. Now, we don't know if that's taking place and that's exactly what we'll be talking about today. I've entitled this episode, No Place to Hide. Because this market right now is sitting right on a razor's edge in between recovering from a correction or falling deeper into a bear market. Now the reason I've entitled this episode No Place to Hide is because I'm going to cover about a dozen different sectors of the market or asset classes that under normal conditions would be a good place to put your money. And I am hearing people right now screaming, you know, buy this, no, 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 buy that. Well, I'm going to review with you these dozen or so areas, and as we go through them, I'll explain to you why I have concerns with every one of them. That's why there's no place to hide. Now, before we dig down into the details, I do want to mention two things, and they both relate to my firm's website, investablewealth.com. That's where I blog under the category of observations and commentary. If you go to investablewealth.com, Look up at the top part of the menu, you'll see a tab there that says Observations and Commentary. If you click on there, you'll see an archive of all my blog posts. They start with the most recent one. The reason I bring this up is because even though I didn't have a podcast mid-last week, I did put out two blog posts. It's always easier for me to blog than it is to actually record an audio podcast. So if something occurs timely, you're most likely to find that over at investablewealth.com. You can also, free of charge, subscribe to that blog post. You'll see on the website, it just says enter your email, and you click subscribe. You don't get spams. You don't get any sales pitches. All you get is whenever I put an update on there with a blog post, you'll get notified of it. Now, the reason it's important to be subscribed to the blog post and get these timely notifications is because whenever I make trades, I try and do a blog post about it to not only notify you what I did, but also give you some rationale behind it. Now, it's always great to go back and look at that through 2020 hindsight and get a historical perspective of what I've said. But if you're currently in the market and you're following me in any way, or at least if you want to get an opinion of what my trades are, you're going to hear about them first probably at that blog post. So on Thursday, January 7th, I posted that I had closed out of my overweighted position in the U.S. dollar. If you remember, for well over six months in the last year, I had been about 50% in the U.S. dollar. I primarily did that through the ETF UUP, that's Uniform Uniform Papa. But as of last week, I closed out all those positions. I won't cover the details with you right now. It is over there in the blog post. The bottom line, though, was the reason I sold is because the dollar broke the support at the level that I had preset. And while I still think the dollar has a lot of upside to it, if we go into uh, a deeper correction or into a bear market, the dollar is likely to go down to at least the lows that we saw this past August. That's about 4 or more percent below where we are right now. 
I'm trying to save myself the grief of going through that. So I took my profits. I moved out of the dollar. If in fact we do get more of a collapse and the dollar does drop three to five or six percent, I would most likely buy it back at that point. But for now, I am out of the dollar. You can read about that at investablewealth.com. The other thing I want to point out is that over the weekend, I put up a post about whether we are in a correction or a bear market. That's what we'll talk about today. You can see the verbiage for it over at investablewealth.com. And more importantly, you can see the three charts that I'm using to illustrate this. I show you how the market fell apart during the dot-com bubble in 2000. I show you where their support level was, which was the line that had to be crossed for the market to go from just a traditional or a historic, a healthy correction into falling down into a bear market and becoming a significant recession and a, and a significant drop in the stock market. So I, I show you historically what that chart looked like in 2000. It's really the period of like 1999 through 2001. I then show you what our market looks like today. I point out that that line, uh, the line that I've interpreted anyways, is where I think that the separation is between whether we're in a correction or whether we're in a bear market. I think that's at about 1850. That's a little bit below the lows that we saw this past August. We're not there yet. So that's why I'm not worried about a, an imminent crash at this point. We need to go below that line before we get into bear market territory. And then what I do in the third chart is I overlay our current market conditions on top of the bear market when it collapsed during the dot-com bubble. And you can see the similarities and, and the similar patterns from where we are now and what would be likely to happen if we break below the support at the correction level. Now, I don't relate the conditions we're in now to the market in 2000 or 2008 or any other period uh, just for, for dramatics or to create a bunch of hysteria. The talking heads on TV do that all the time. The headlines are always shown, you know, oh, this is the worst market since 1929 market crash. You know, look how this chart compares. Well, you can make anything look like anything else. What I've simply done is tried to line up the dot-com bust of 2000, which we know is not historically unique to that time period. If you look at any market that goes into a bear market, they have similar traits. Now, they're all a little bit different, but broadly speaking, they have similar traits and characteristics. And right now, our market is acting like it's headed towards that, but I want to stress all we're showing right now is that we're having lower highs, lower lows. It looks like the market's rolling over, but we are above that delineating mark that separates a correction from a bear market. And that's a significant point that I want to make with you is that as long as we stay above that 1850 or so on the S&P 500, then we're not in a bear market and we're not likely to go into a bear market. We have to breach that gap first. Now, the difference between a correction and a bear market, just for those of you that may not be aware, is that a correction is generally the, when the market comes down you know, 10 or so percent. It's very healthy. You want to see that. It acts as a relief valve in the economy when things get too overheated in the stock market. We have a pullback. The prices come down. Maybe the market corrects to 9, 10, 12%, whatever it is, somewhere in that range. That's good. That's healthy. It shakes out the weaker hands. It gets rid of the people that are fearful and paranoid. But then the market turns around and it eventually goes on to make new highs. Now, we've seen this same thing carry out for the last three or four years, although we have very rarely gotten down to that level of 10%. 
Well, we're in that correction mode right now. We're down about 10, 10.5% or so from the highs that we saw back in July. So we're in the correction mode, but again, that's healthy. That's the relief valve that releases some pressure so that the market can consolidate and then go on to newer highs. What we're concerned with is if we fall into a bear market, and a bear market occurs generally when the economy goes into a recession, although it, it doesn't have to particularly be a recession, but it's when the market drops at least 20% from its high, and when things like that occur, they generally last a much longer time frame than just the correction. The, the correction can turn around in a matter of days and go on to new highs. When you go through a bear market, you can be talking about a delay of, you know, from 3 to 18 months before you get back up to new highs. So it's very critical to know the difference between are you in a bear market or a correction. If it's only a correction, then it's safe to buy the dips. It's safe to buy into the market when it drops down 5 or 6 or 7%. Because it is going to turn right around and go back up. But if you're in a bear market, the market not only lowers in price, but it's like falling off the edge of a cliff. Things can not only just go down in price, but they can collapse like an avalanche. And so I have those charts over at my website, investablewealth.com. Now I'm belaboring this point quite a bit, but I want to point out that every day when you turn on the TV or go to a website, you're going to hear people taking both sides of the argument right now. Some people are screaming, chicken little, the sky is falling, we're going to be in an economic collapse, this is going to be a bear market, you know, sell everything, bury your money in the backyard, buy gold, whatever. And other people are screaming just as loudly, no, you know, either buy and hold or this is the time to be buying because the market's going to go on to all new highs. Well, I do believe that the market will go on to all new highs. The question is, will it go on to all new highs next week or will it take three years to get there? That's the part I don't know about. In no case or no matter am I concerned about an economic global collapse. So yes, I do believe the market is going to stabilize and go back up to all new highs. It's just a question of when. And what I really want to emphasize to you here is, is that no matter how loud the people scream on TV or no matter what type of credentials they have, no one has any idea what's going to happen. We just have to wait through this and, and bide our time and see what happens. Eventually, yes, things will stabilize. The market will go up. But no one with any type of certainty or reliable probability can tell you when or how that's going to happen. And that includes me. And that's why I'm not going to try and tell you that. What I'm going to do in today's episode and what I've done over the last 160 plus episodes of this podcast is hopefully try and give you wealth building principles that you can use regardless of the market situation to mitigate risk to look for trends, to look for opportunities, and to hopefully help you have a better idea of how to think for yourself and when you should be moving into certain investments. The important thing to remember is that risk mitigation. When times are extremely uncertain, when we don't see a discernible trend, or when it looks like the market is unfavorable to us or our algorithm or our model is not working out, that's not the time to double down and put more money into the market. That's time to pause to take your money out of the market and to reflect and to wait until things stabilize to get back in. You see, it's very simple to build wealth. All you have to do is own appreciating assets. That's the easy part. The hard part is determining what assets are appreciating because they're constantly changing. And so with that being said, let's jump into the main topic of today where I want to put out my thesis for right now that although I don't know if the market's going up or going down tomorrow, I know that there's about a dozen or so areas where you would normally put your money and right now they all look risky to me. They all look like the model's broken. 
I don't see a defined appreciating asset trend in any of them that I want to buy into over the long term. And so consequently, that's why I'm in cash right now for the most part. My entire portfolio with uh, this, the small amount of money that I have in Walmart is in cash. I'm going to remain there until I can see a better trend developing. And as always in this podcast, I'm not making a recommendation to you. I'm not telling you what you should be doing. I'm not providing you any advice. I'm simply telling you how I see the market. I'm telling you what my positions are. I'm just sharing that information. I want to help you to be able to think for yourself and make your own decisions. Now, while I can't be sure where the market's going to go tomorrow, uh, in fact, the market could actually go up a little bit from here. We could see what's called a relief rally because the market has come down so hard and so quickly during these first 11 days of the year. So far in the S&P 500, there have only been two days of trading where the market has closed higher than it closed on the previous day. And the markets were basically just flat on those days. But what's even more concerning to me is, is that there's only been one day so far this year where the market has closed up higher than where it opened. And that day was on January 5th last week. So every other day that's traded this year, the market ended the day lower than what it opened at. Now, that's concern one that I have. And incidentally, as I said, I'm going to go through about a dozen or so different things I'm looking at. These are not in any particular order. This is just my the way my attention deficit mind thought as I wrote them down. So don't put any particular significance to, to any one item. And then I also want to point out that in and of themselves, none of these concerns that I have are a deal breaker on an individual basis. But when you put them all together... That's what really concerns me, and that's what personally has me leading to the fact that I do think we might be headed into a bear market, even though, again, I want to stress we're above that delineation. We are still just in correction territory. It would not surprise me at all if during these next week or two of earnings announcements, if we do get some good earnings announcements, perhaps the market could could move up. It, it has been oversold. It's come down quite a bit in a short period of time. But in my opinion, that is most likely only a relief rally. That's people coming in and prematurely buying these dips. I think the underlying fundamentals in the economy don't justify the levels that we're at. And so it's likely for the market to go lower and perhaps go into that bear market category. But definitely you want to watch the S&P 500. And the best thing that we have to go on right now is how is the market closing? Is it closing lower every day than it's opening? And is it closing lower than the day before? That's the best we can look at right now because, because the market is below all the other indicators. The five days below the 10, the 10's below the 50, and right now we're seeing the 50 breaking down below the 200. The S&P 500 is also significantly below its 100-day moving average. And if you remember what I've talked about in previous lessons and what I've blogged about, to me, the best indicator of whether uh, you want to be in or out of the market is to watch that 100-day moving average. Over the last 15 or 20 years, had you stayed out of the market whenever the S&P 500 dropped below its 100-day moving average, then you would have missed every catastrophic loss that occurred. So that 100-day moving average is a is a key long-term uh, trend-following market timing type indicator, and the market right now is currently almost 5% below that key indicator. That's why I don't think it's wise right now to be hiding out in the S&P 500. 
So let's move on to the next area. That would be gold. Usually when we're in a situation like this where the markets are very unstable, where the S&P is down below its 100-day moving average, when we're bordering that line, that delineation between correction and bear market, usually the fear index is so high that gold really starts to break out and take off. Well, we're not seeing that happen. And yes, gold last week did come up some, but you know, gold right now, as I record this, it's below $1,100 an ounce. And that's a phenomenon we've seen for most of last year. Gold just can't get up above $1,100 an ounce, no matter how bad the news is, no matter how bad the fear index gets. Gold just doesn't break out. And for all the reasons I've talked about in previous podcasts, I don't think it's going to go much higher now. Again, I can be wrong, but I think with just the decline in overall commodities and energy prices, I think the price of gold long-term is headed lower. And so right now, I wouldn't be hiding out in gold because although, yes, it it may have some upside to it, I think the long-term trajectory is down below $1,000 an ounce. For more information on my thoughts on that or any of the other things we talk about today, You can go either to wealthsteading.com or investablewealth.com. You'll see a search box where you can put in a term like gold or U.S. dollar or oil or something like that. Put in whatever term you want and then whatever comments I've made on that on the blog or previous podcasts, you'll get a list of those because what I'm talking about today, this theme hasn't changed. Nothing is new here. This is pretty much a continuation of what we've seen for at least the last year and a half. We're just seeing the chickens come home to roost at this point. So that brings us to oil. I know a lot of people keep looking for the bottom in oil. Watch for a future podcast where I will put together uh, an episode that will tell you about what I'm specifically looking at before I jump into oil and what I'll probably be purchasing. A lot of people have asked me about that, so I will put together that episode. But for right now, I think it's safe to say that oil isn't the place to be hiding out. It doesn't appear to be that this is where you want to buy the dip. As I record this, oil is below $32 a barrel. The real tell and the real key to me right now on the long-term trend of oil is that when you look at the tensions and the problems we're seeing in the Middle East, the problems between the Saudis and the Iranians, the problems that we're seeing in, in the periphery of the Middle East, places like Syria... Despite all those problems we're having, the problems with ISIS, the terrorist bombings, the disruption of oil lines and things, even though we were seeing those problems and we've seen them for you know, the better part of last year, the price of oil isn't going up. It continues to go down. So again, right now, oil at below $32 a barrel with all the troubles in the Middle East. We're still seeing very low oil prices, and I do realize that a lot of rigs have come offline and production may be slowing, but at the same time, the market price on oil is incredibly low. Again, go back and reference previous writings and podcasts, and you'll get an understanding of why I don't think that oil is likely to go much above $50 because of all the technology we have with shale oil production. But in the meantime, it's quite possible that oil could dip down into the 20s. Now, I don't know if it'll go all the way down to $20 a barrel, but that's not historically unprecedented. You know, the average price through the 90s was somewhere around $20, $25 a barrel, maybe less. So watch oil. Expect it to go below $30 a barrel. I don't think this is the time to be buying the dip. Oil is not a commodity I'm going to be hiding in right now. Let's talk about general commodities. Once again, I've been hearing for at least the past 18 months that the price can't go any lower. And yet, month after month, 
all the commodities, if you look at just the general basket of commodities, we continue to see lower highs and lower lows. That's with agriculture, that's with precious metals, that's with industrial base metals and timber and, and just about everything. There's, there's, you know, there are little isolated niches every now and then we'll see cocoa go up or, or maybe live beef cattle. But for the most part, the entire sector has been in a downtrend since 2008, certainly since 2011. At some point, yes, we will hit the bottom. Things will consolidate and they'll move up, but I don't think that time is yet. For now, I'm not hiding out in commodities. I'm staying out of that sector, and I would urge caution. My, my thinking has really changed over the last six months to where things have gotten so bad. I, I was thinking six months ago that we might see a pop, that, yes, you know, things will come down, they'll consolidate, and then they'll shoot up 15, 20, 30 percent. Things have come down so low and the overall global situation is such that there is such a oversupply and the supply demand is so far out of equilibrium right now that I think that we might not see a pop. Now, I'm not saying that prices will go down forever. Obviously, they can't. They have to stabilize. They have to consolidate. But my thinking has evolved to the point now where I, where I would not be at all surprised to see that the commodity bubble has burst this was a bubble that was created because of all the easy money and because of all the overconsumption that we saw during the housing bubble, which fell apart in 2008. And we're just not getting back to that point anytime soon on a U.S. basis or on a global basis. And so the high prices that we saw commodities hit going up and through like 2008, 2011, that was an aberration. That was a peak, just like the dot-com bubble was a peak in 2000. And I don't think we're likely to, to get back to those levels. I think it's more likely that we're going to see a regression to the mean where commodity prices are going to stabilize and they're going to go somewhere in the range to where they had been previous to the housing bubble, which would be like 2005 and before pricing. So to give you an example, right now, copper is trading for around $2 a pound. Before 2005, going back for 15 to 10 years, you know, going back into the, into the 1990s, copper fluctuated somewhere between, you know, maybe 75 or 50 cents a pound up to a dollar 50, somewhere in that range. I think we're headed back to that type of range and that type of uh, stability. I don't think we're going to see pricing levels get anywhere even close to 50% of what they were at the peak. I think the bubble looks like it's over and that growth is just not going to compensate for the oversupply for at least the next, I don't know, five to 10 years. I think that's probably where stable pricing is going to be and you're not going to see a huge bump from there. So be cautious buying into that. Again, I don't see commodities as being a place to hide right now. Now, the U.S. dollar, you heard me talk about that. You heard me say that I closed out my position. I have felt that it was good to be hiding out in the U.S. dollar. I also held that position for a good bit in 2014. I still think that it's likely for the dollar to appreciate anywhere from 5 to 10% during 2016, so it could be one of the best asset classes to invest in on a risk-reward basis, but that's only after things stabilize. If the stock market continues to drop, that means that people will flock into U.S. Treasuries for safety. That will drive the yield of the Treasury down. Whenever the Treasury goes down, generally the dollar correlates to that. And so just like we saw during the flash crash in August, the dollar could dip down another 3, 4, 5% from where it is right now. I don't want to own it if it's depreciating, right? I only want to own assets that are appreciating. 
And so for right now, I'm not hiding out in the U.S. dollar. And let me clarify that statement. When I say I'm not invested or hiding out in the U.S. dollar, I mean in buying an indexed exchange-traded fund that's trading the U.S. dollar in a long position against a basket of other currencies. So I'm not buying things like the ETF UUP. My money is in, quote, cash. It is in U.S. dollars, but that isn't something that's safe like a money market fund or like a short-term bond fund that would be offered at my brokerage or at my bank. I'm not speculating that the dollar is going to rise against other currencies by investing in an ETF such as UUP. Now, the next area I want to talk about is treasuries. I just talked about treasuries. I mentioned that if the market, if the stock market continues to decline, if global economic conditions continue to deteriorate, as that fear index goes up, people will move investors, big institutional investors, pension funds, they'll move their money to something that's safer, and there's nothing that's safer than the United States treasuries. And so supply and demand, when more people buy treasuries, there's more of a demand than there is a supply, the price of those treasuries goes up, but consequently, the yield comes down. Right now, we're seeing the 10-year Treasury at 2.16%. This is after the fact that the Federal Reserve raised rates, and everybody's expecting them to raise rates you know, four more times this year. And everybody was counting on the fact that rates were going to go higher. We were at one point thinking rates may you know, at least stay up above 2.25%, uh, if not get into that 2.3%. Well, they're a long way off of that right now, and that's because of the fear people are rushing into U.S. Treasuries. It is a safe place to be in terms of being paid a, a small dividend of, again, you know, 2.16% if you buy a 10-year Treasury. The problem with that is, and this is why I don't think it's a place to hide right now, is that you never want to fight the Federal Reserve. That's an old adage on Wall Street, don't fight the Fed. So if the Fed is raising interest rates, it means that bond prices are going to come down. And if the Fed, if we go into a recession and the Fed lowers interest rates, that means that bond prices will go up. Well, right now it looks like we're headed into a recession, but at the same time, the Federal Reserve keeps coming out and every day they send out another one of their pundits to say, no, we're still going to raise rates at least three or four times this year. So will they really do it? I have no idea. It, I'm very skeptical. But at the same time, you don't fight the Fed the rates we're at now are well below what we had in, in previous periods when the stock market was, was acting up. So it is feasible that the Fed could raise them. It's just politically unlikely. But because of that uncertainty, I'm not going to take the chance and buy into treasuries right now. Now, if, if I had already held them, for people that already hold them in their position, it may be something you want to hold on to. I personally am just not rushing into treasuries at this point like I would during a normal bear market or correction market. If we weren't in this transition time of our Federal Reserve trying to raise rates while at the same time the rest of the world is doubling down on quantitative easing and, and then when our Federal Reserve still has $4.5 trillion on their balance sheet that they keep reinvesting into more bonds and more mortgage-backed securities, about $20 billion a month, um, that's still quantitative easing. There's just no historic precedence for what's going to happen at this point. And so consequently, I'm not hiding out in treasuries even though during a normal bear market or correction market, I would be. The other thing I'm concerned about is that the Chinese renminbi, their, their currency, the yuan, 
It continues to fall apart and devaluate. They're having a really hard time defending that. China is the largest foreign holder of U.S. treasuries. And to try and stabilize their economy to raise the cash they need, they're selling a lot of their treasuries. Remember, when you sell treasuries, it's the supply and demand thing. You're putting more treasuries on the market, so consequently, the price comes down, the yield goes up. That's countering what we're seeing from the fear index, where people are rushing in to buy treasuries, which consequently raises the price and lowers the yield. So there's a really a tug of war going on right now that's stabilizing U.S. Treasury prices and, and it's keeping that yield somewhere around that 2.15% because while fearful people come in and try and bid the price up, the Chinese are dumping their assets, bringing it down. You know, at the end of the day, I don't know who's going to win that. And so once again, that's a reason I'm not hiding out in bonds or in U.S. Treasuries right now while we're seeing all this market volatility. The next area I'm concerned with is corporate earnings. Corporate earnings keep getting revised down. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters on the price of a stock is what the earnings is. That's why we talk about valuations. Valuations are always based on the premium that you pay for the stock, and it's a premium over the earnings. So if earnings are going down, people will be less willing to pay that premium and ultimately the price could come down even more. I'm not going to say a lot about earnings in this episode, but once again, I blogged about it quite a bit. In particular, I have a blog post that's dated November 7th of 2015. It's entitled Overly Optimistic Wall Street. That's where I talk about the fact that in 2014, they were estimating that 2015 earnings would be $130 a share. Those got revised down all year. And when I wrote that blog back in November, they were saying that earnings will probably be less than $107. Right now, we're seeing that S&P earnings for 2015 are going to come in right around $106. And so that's significantly off what they were originally projected to be at $130. It's something like, I don't know, maybe a 17% difference. In that blog, I show you several graphs that show the declining in earnings. And I also show you the divergence between the performance of the S&P 500 and where future earnings are actually being projected. And the real curious thing there is that at the earnings level we're at right now, that would put us back to the levels that we saw in 2013. That's when the S&P 500 was trading at around 1848. Now remember, I just earlier in this podcast mentioned that I think the delineation line between the market falling from a correction and collapsing into a bear market, that delineation line is somewhere around 1850. Well, our earnings right now are just justifying about that level, and that's historically where we were at in 2013. And what's even more concerning to me than that is that that level would only be achieved with a valuation of about 18 times earnings. Now, 18 times earnings was justified to be paid in 2013 because in 2013, we kept being told by all the economists that the economy was going to hit escape velocity and that the you know future was going to look bright, that we would see three, three and a half, four percent growth rates, that everything was rosy all around the world, that all these economies were improving and all this quantitative easing money was lifting and the tide that was, you know, rising all boats. Well, we know that's not the case. We know that there's been quite a bit of diminishing returns from all that quantitative easing. We're not seeing global growth be able to exceed even 3%. U.S. GDP growth, they've revised it back down to maybe 2.5%. I've seen recent numbers saying 2.1 or 2.2. 
So the rosy picture that was justifying an 18 times price to earnings ratio on the S&P 500 back in 2013 is not the same one you would put on a market that was in correction or going into a bear market like we're seeing in 2016. So you can play those numbers however you'd like. You know, for example, the S&P 500 right now is trading at 19.23. Divide that by the previous 12 months earnings, which we're estimating at $106. You come up with a price to earnings ratio of 18 times. You would pay 18 or 19 times earnings if you thought the future was very bright. But we don't think the future is very bright at this point. And so lower that valuation. Let's bring it down to, say, 17, which would still be historically high. So take 17, multiply that times 106, that puts you at about 1,800. So that would be the S&P 500 at 1,800, well below that 1,850 level I'm talking about as being support. And then get more pessimistic with it. Let's say that it goes down to a more realistic 16 times earnings. So 16 times our previous 12-month trailing earnings would put the stock market at right around 1,700 on the S&P 500. Let's get even more pessimistic. Drop that down to a 15 times earnings, which is slightly below average, but not anywhere near out of the ordinary. That would put you at less than 1600 on the S&P 500. And if you say, hey, John, you're just being pessimistic. You're looking at trailing earnings. What about future earnings? Well, I'll tell you right now, the, the earnings projections I'm seeing, they are still projecting 10% earnings for 2016. I don't believe that. I think that's way too high of a number. So let's just say the market grows at 7%. I think 7% is optimistic, but it's at least within the realm of possibilities. And, and I'm talking about earnings growth here. I'm not necessarily talking about GDP growth because of the way they financially engineer the balance sheets. You know, it would be likely that we could see 6 or 7% growth this year. So even assuming 7% growth and a historic neutral valuation of, say, 16 times earnings, that still only puts the S&P 500 at 1814. And that level of S&P 500, which you could assume would be an honest valuation for where we're headed over the next six months, well, that's over 5.5% below where we are right now. And it's also below that support delineation line that I've drawn out at 1850. Again, earnings are a big concern to me. That's why I'm not hiding out in the market. And that's why I'm not buying the dips right now. Incidentally, I know I've run through these numbers really quickly. Um, there are other examples of what I just talked you through on my website, investablewealth.com. You should be able to find a blog post that outlines some of that math in the charts. The beauty of a podcast is you can always go back and rewind it and play it slower if you missed what I said. Go out and work this stuff out with a pencil. Get, get a calculator and some scratch paper and just run through those numbers I just did and do it so that you understand the premise and the concept. Because the price of the stock or the price of any index always comes down to the earnings times the valuation. It's really that simple. You don't need a Harvard MBA to figure it out. The next thing that worries me is market sentiment. Right now, we do have a lot of people that are very bearish. They're claiming chicken little, the sky's going to fall, you know, sell everything, go to gold, bury your money in the backyard. Well, there are a lot of people saying that, and that's really a... A good sign because that's generally a contrarian view where in general the bears do get it wrong and the emotion of fear is always greater than the emotion of greed. On, you know, Wall Street, they say that stocks take the stairs up and the elevator down. And that's because when people are fearful, they panic and they sell at any price. 
So the fact that so many people are bearish right now is actually probably a positive sign for the market. But at the same time, when I look what the professionals on Wall Street are buying, you know, the institutional investors, the pension fund investors, it appears that they're no longer buying the dip. Now, if you go back for virtually any time over the last three years, every time the market fell four to six percent, the professional investors would come in, they'd buy on that on the dip and that would raise the market and the market would go on to all new highs. Well, that part of the personality of the stock market fell apart. We've really not seen that happen since before the flash crash in August. There was some buying on the dip during the fourth quarter, but in no way uh, the same amount of volumes and enthusiasm, I guess you could say irrational exuberance that we'd seen in, in the previous 36 months. So as far as overall market sentiment, I would say be really cautious unless we see these institutional investors coming in and buying these dips in significant volume. The next area that worries me is value stocks. These are generally the defensive stocks. You know, we talk about these as being the alcohol and tobacco stocks, things like Philip Morris, things that are consumer staples like Procter & Gamble. During times of trouble or when there's fear in the market, investors flock into those type of stocks and then also into things like utilities because they know that those indexes and those stocks pay steady dividends. And even though they, they realize that they may go down over the short term, they'll eventually come up and over the period of that time, they'll pay a dividend. Well, I'm not rushing into value stocks at this point because the valuations on them are even higher than the general market. That's very concerning to me. Again, when we consider what we just talked about, where we're at already high historic valuations when you consider that we're in a troubled market. So, for example, Philip Morris stock probably trading at something like 21 times forward earnings. So that's taking into any type of growth they're going to experience going forward over the course of 2016. Similar thing with a stock like Procter & Gamble. Again, it's a very good blue chip stock, but it's trading at something like 19 times forward earnings. When you look at something like utility index, the valuations are better, but, but they're still high. They're probably somewhere in that range of 16 to 17 times earnings. I think these valuations are just too rich given the turbulent market that we're in. So this takes me to the last three areas. And although, as I mentioned before, these are not in any particular order, I will say that these last three are the ones that concern me the most. So here they are. One is leadership. You've heard me talk all last year that although the indexes appear to be holding up fairly well in 2015, a lot of that was because some of the large cap growth stocks were holding up the rest of the market. So things like Google, Facebook, Disney, they were doing extremely well and they were masking the poor performance of the general market. Well, we're starting to see the performance of these leaders fading. Well, you can go through a list of these and look them up yourself. I will just give you a couple quick ones off the top of my head. Google is a stock that performed extremely well last year. Uh, so far in the opening week of this year, we're seeing Google down about 3.5%. Now, performing worse than that is Facebook. It's down almost 7% over the past week. And things get even worse if you look at a stock like Disney. Now, Disney should be profiting right now from the success they're having with Star Wars. But over the past week, it's down about 5%. Over the past month, it's down about 7.5%. And over the past six months, it's down over 14%. Disney's a great company. I'm sure it will recover and do just fine. In my opinion, it would have been much better off trying to time it and sell it after it had, had made that astronomical move last year. Could have locked in the profits, and then you can always buy it back once we get through this rough patch in the economy. I'll just throw one other stock out for you, and that's Tesla. Now, I've never been a fan of Tesla. I do like their technology. I love Elon Musk. 
The stock has just always been way overrated for things that I would invest in. I think there's been a whole lot of hype behind it, but we're seeing the price valuations. They're starting to diminish. Just over the last five days, Tesla is down about 13.5%, and over the past six months, they're down almost 20%. So some of the glitter seems to be coming off of Tesla. And again, not to say that it's not going to be a great company in five years, but when you start going through corrections and bear markets, these stocks that are more speculative in nature, they take a big hit, and the good ones go down as well as the bad ones. Now, the next area that really concerns me is small caps. Small cap stocks, we, we look at them on the Russell 2000. They had a bad year in 2015. They underperformed for the first half, and then they did have a nice rise uh, right around the summer. Since then, they've fallen apart. It's been lower highs, lower lows. That's concerning because your growth, your future Teslas and your future Googles, they come out of those small cap stocks. And again, when people start to be concerned about the future, they're going to take their money out of the most risky assets. That would be the Russell 2000, the small cap stocks. And so to that degree, that's why the small cap stocks can act as a canary in the coal mine and be an early warning that the overall market is going to go down because people are going to pull out of that first. Well, if you're not following the Russell 2000, you should be watching it. And what worries me is that the Russell 2000 has not only dropped below that support level uh, that it had established back on the lows during the flash crash in August, but as of today, it's actually even broken support from the lows that occurred back in October of 2014. We're seeing some really hard deterioration in these small cap stocks. And basically, all the profits that have been made in small caps since December of 2012 have been wiped out. If nothing else I've said concerns you, that should at least get your attention. The Russell 2000 right now is well below all its support levels. And in fact, it's sitting right now on about its four-year moving average. That's a really big concern and a big red flag that things could get worse before they get better. And then finally, my last area of concern, again, this is a big one, and this is foreign stocks. Oftentimes, when you're worried about a correction, you know, in the U.S., we can say, oh, well, no big deal. We'll go to Europe. We'll go to Japan. We'll go to the emerging markets. Well, you can't do that right now. You can't hide out in foreign markets either. Germany, the powerhouse of Europe, it's down over 4% just in the last five days. It's down over 15% in the last six months. A lot of people flocked into Europe because of all the quantitative easing. Uh, you remember that I was in there earlier, uh, first quarter of 2015, but that quantitative easing is starting to wear off. They're not getting the effects they wanted. The economy is growing at best at around 1.5, 1.7%. I believe that all these refugees that are coming in are going to cause further strain on the economy. It's going to be a bigger drain on the welfare system. And so goes Germany, goes the rest of Europe, because it's the best and most strongest economy on that continent. So I don't like Europe right now. If we look over to Japan, now that has been an economy that actually was probably the, the bright spot of all of 2015. When I look back with 2020 hindsight, I got out of that one too early. However, again, it, it stars diminishing. The glimmer's coming off of it. In the last five days, it's down 5%. It's down 9% over the past six months. And when you do a comparison of the relative strength against the Japanese stock market with the U.S. stock market, um, it is significantly declining. And so for me, that's reason enough to stay out of Japan. And then if you look at the final area of the foreign stocks and you look at emerging markets, the emerging markets have pretty much mimicked commodities, and though, although they're not down to the same degree, 
They have had a declining trend line since uh, 2008 to maybe 2011. Over the past 12 months, emerging markets are down about 25%. So with a decline of 25%, I'm not rushing in there. I don't think the bottom's in yet. That gets back to what we talked about at the beginning around commodities. You have to watch for the price of oil to stabilize. I think it's likely to go down into the 20s before it moves back up. And really, I think the green light will be when we see that oil can consistently hover around $45 a barrel. And that's not if there's a supply disruption or if there's a war in the Middle East or something or more rising tensions in the Middle East. We're looking for growth out of China to be strong enough to warrant a oil price of around $40, $45 a barrel. I think that's when we know that China has had a soft landing, and it's only going to be after the Chinese economy starts to steady that I think we're going to see things pick up on a global basis and be good for all the economies. So I'm watching China. Again, I've been saying that for the better part of 18 to 12 months. So the bottom line on all this is I remain believing that the biggest problem is China, and until we see stability there, we're going to be in troubled waters. So take that for what it's worth. That's just my opinion. I appreciate you taking the time to listen, and until the next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.